Well, good evening, everybody. Welcome back. Sunday night. We still do Sunday night, 6.30. Thanks for joining us. We're in a series called Soul Food. Uh, the things you need to know about your Bible, how we got it, how to read it. Uh, tonight, the topic, I think, is kind of timely, kind of relevant. Human words, divine words, what inerrancy is and isn't, and why it matters. I want to start with 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 to 21. The Apostle Peter writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So through the whole church age, right up to the coming of Jesus. Knowing this, first of all, so here's what you have to have in place first, before you move on to anything else, before you start discussing what sin is, which things are awful, which things are lawful, which things are wonderful, before you start looking at uh, any promises, you need to know that the words are accurate. So first of all, knowing this first of all, verse 20, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. We looked at that last Sunday night. You can get that online. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God. They spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. As Peter writes this, of course, all there would be is the 24 books of the Old Testament Jewish scriptures, the same books as our 39 Old Testament books. They just group them differently. So when Peter writes about these prophetic words and the prophecies of Scripture, he's saying that these weren't just human thoughts directed as best they could trying to figure out God, but that these were words that God gave these people. There are two terms uh, frequently used by evangelicals to describe the unique nature of the Bible that we carry to church on Sunday. We attribute the uniqueness of Scripture to primarily two things. Infallibility is one word, and inerrancy is the other. <clears throat> By infallibility, we mean that in the Scriptures, we possess a permanent authority that can never be usurped, it can never be added to, it can never be set aside. As Jesus himself said, John ten thirty five, Scripture cannot be broken. That's infallibility. It means there is no other authority that we can bring alongside the Scriptures, not the Roman Catholic Church. It means that Scriptures can't be modified, adapted, updated. It means that they are eternally binding. It means they're eternally irreplaceable. It, infallibility means everything that the text says will happen will happen. All that they promise will stand fast, however unlikely it might appear in the face of contradictory circumstances. All that they command is binding. The fact of Scripture's infallibility isn't just some cold academic doctrine. 
I mean, our, our world needs to know that God's word stands, that it stands eternally. It needs to know, as Jesus said, it needs to know that it never passes away. It never becomes irrelevant. It never becomes out of date. It is the most real thing in a world full of trinkets and philosophies and smoke and mirrors. One day, very soon, all that will matter about your whole existence and mine is how seriously we engaged with God's infallible word of truth. The second word I said was inerrancy. Inerrancy means the scriptures, as God originally gave them, they are exempt from any liability to mistake or error, that they are truthful in what they communicate. They are incapable of error because God is incapable of error and he inspired the book. So in everything that they intend to communicate, that's the important word we're going to look at for quite a bit tonight. In everything they intend to communicate, the scriptures make no mistakes. God's written revelation is reliable. It is a safe revelation. It's that second term that I want to look at tonight. What do we mean, and maybe just as importantly, I said in the title, what do we not mean when we say that the scriptures, as God originally gave them, are inerrant? And and before we launch too deeply, I want to deal with two questions that Christians and critics frequently ask, I find over and over again in conversation with people, that there are two issues that seem to be uh, the most troubling. They're the source of concern and consternation when I think they should be a source of comfort and confidence. So bear with me. This is not the kind of study you do often in the church, just once in a while, So bear with me as we look at this tonight. Point number one. So here's a question that frequently gets asked. Isn't it true that it was centuries before the early church finally recognized the complete canon, canon means rule, standard, of the New Testament? Wasn't it centuries before we had those 27 books collected, gathered, recognized as the New Testament? The honest answer to that question is quite simply, yes. I mean, the actual history, if anybody cares, it it would go something like this, that the first list of the 27 letters we have in our New Testaments comes from the writings of Irenaeus in roughly 180 AD. And the first official affirmation of the completed New Testament canon took place at the Synod of Hippo at 393 AD. So the question I think can get asked, so what was the church doing for the first two and a half centuries or so of her existence? And the answer to that question is, she was establishing the validity and the authenticity of the letters that were handed down to her. I think this is really important. As early as 40 AD, 40 AD, 40 years after Christ, 
a lot of the people following Christ were still alive. As early as 40 AD, the church encountered counterfeit gospels and letters in the writings of Marcion. So there were additional prophets claiming to be apostles. There were other documents and letters frequently stating conflicting doctrines. So the question gets asked, why didn't God just hand down these 27 books from heaven right away? Why this lingering sorting out of letters for two and a half centuries? And the answer is because then, as now, the Holy Spirit was teaching the church to to try, to sort, to study. The Holy Spirit was teaching the church to prove sound doctrine in the realm of conflicting heresies, teachings, religions, and ideas. And that's what we still have to do today, and that's how God was bracing the church for that endeavor. Consider these words from from F.F. Bruce, his great little book, The Books and the Parchments. He says this, quote, What's particularly important to notice is that the New Testament canon was not demarcated by the arbitrary decree of any church council. When at last, a church council at Hippo in A.D. 393 listed the 27 books of the New Testament, it did not confer on them any authority they did not already possess. The council simply recognized and officially recorded their consistency and established canonicity. So so the the point a Bruce is making is that unlike Roman Catholic theology, the church doesn't confer the authority on these 27 ancient texts. It merely listed the letters that they recognized as already possessing that kind of authority. But there's another truth that kind of emerges out of this point. And I, and I think I, we need to at least look at it at, at this time. What this means is the fact that there was this time lag before the establishing of the 27 books of the New Testament. What it means is the theology of the early church was purer and safer after the recognition of those 27 books than before. So true doctrine was easier to validate because everyone was keying off the same books and letters. In other words, in other words, we are in much better shape doctrinally than the early church ever was or ever could be. It matters because we have everything today from, you know, remember the Da Vinci Code and all that fuss. It dies out so fast over the Gospels of Judas and Thomas telling us we need to zoom back to earlier letters. Because it's nonsense. Because, because what, what we've just been studying is the church had already gone over this ground and rejected those documents by the second century. The process of sorting and sifting of earlier documents and excluding those that were not thought reliable, it puts us 
on a far more stable foundation for our faith. We had those early years already to reject so many heresies that keep poking their heads up down through the years. The time lag isn't bad news. The time lag is very good news. Here's another question, point number two. With so many manuscripts and manuscript fragments of the New Testament, there are bound to be variations in the text. Isn't this a huge problem for the doctrine of inerrancy? Well, first, yes, there are many, many discovered manuscripts and fragments of manuscripts, and and that in itself deserves just a minute of, of reflection. I mean, historical documents, and I mean all historical documents, not just scripture, all historical documents, they're considered very well represented if they have over five historic manuscripts to back the original writings. Now, this won't mean much to many of you, but let me, let me just quickly mention some of these other historic documents. Caesar's Gallic Wars has about 10 manuscripts, the oldest of which dates, remember this, 900 years after the events. The Roman History of Livy has about 20 manuscripts, The Annals of Roman historian Tacitus has two manuscripts. The History of Thucydides has eight manuscripts. Now, all of those, you've never heard of them, and that doesn't matter. My point is that all of those documents are considered very sound historic documents for scholarly study and reference. Now, listen to this. Today, we have 5,700 fragments and manuscripts of the New Testament. And yes, of course, that means there are variations in the wording from one manuscript to another, but that shouldn't be troubling to anyone who thinks this through. It's true. The more manuscripts you have, the more variations you will find. But there's another important point to remember. The greater number of manuscripts you have the easier it is to prove the original from the variant. If that sounds complicated, think of it this way. It's like telling, trying to tell which clock is the accurate one. Pretend, just for a minute, there are only two clocks. When I say only two clocks, I mean in the whole world, okay? In the whole world, there are only two clocks, If you only have two clocks and one says it's 10 o'clock and the other says it's 11 o'clock and there are no other clocks, how are you going to tell which one's accurate? I mean, it wouldn't be impossible. You may be able to measure by the sun or the length of shadows, but it's a tricky business. Let's pretend now you have a thousand clocks in the world, and 999 of them say it's 11 o'clock, and only one of them says it's 10 o'clock. 
it's far more likely that you're sure it's 11 o'clock. The plain fact is, if you only have two manuscripts, it's hard to tell which is the accurate one. If you have 5,700 manuscripts and fragments, you can see where the variants are more easily than with any other historic document in existence. Do you think it's an accident that God has allowed so many manuscripts of the New Testament and, and manuscript fragments to be discovered? Third question, point number three. Is there other evidence outside the New Testament from which we can examine the accuracy of the biblical text? Answer is, yes, there is a great deal. I mean, very recognized historic documents verify the reliability of the New Testament letters that you bring to church on Sunday and read during the week. The Didache, the Epistle of Barnabas, Clement's letter to the Corinthians, all of those historically recognized documents by Christians and atheists alike, all of them refer to extensive quotations from the New Testament just the way you have it today. We need to pause and consider the importance of that fact. F.F. Bruce says this in his book, uh, The New Testament Documents. He says, no classical scholar would listen to an argument that the authenticity of Heroditus or Thucydides is in doubt because the earliest manuscripts of their works, which are of any use to us, appear 1,300 years after the original. 1,300 years, and these are recognized historic documents. The oldest copies we have are 1,300 years after the originals. Now, consider this. We have reliable outside collaboration in other historic documents of the accuracy and reliability of the New Testament written only 80 to 100 years after the events described. I mean, think about that. That means that these other historic writers had already studied, digested, fully circulated New Testament letters before they wrote theirs, and they wrote theirs 80 years after the events. This is very, very early evidence to the credibility of your New Testament. Four. Here's where I want to spend a little bit of time. I've heard people give examples of errors they found in their Bibles. Pastor Don, how do you explain that? So I want to now, I want to wrap up with some principles that I, I try and live by when I read my Bible. Uh, I don't have time to cover it all, but here goes. Yes, there are things I can't fully explain yet. A few, not very many, that I can't fully explain yet. But beyond that, I have learned that most of the alleged errors in the text have a different explanation and a better explanation. I think we need to be careful in explaining what we do mean, but maybe even more careful in explaining what we don't mean when we talk about biblical inerrancy. 
So when I use the term inerrant, and I do embrace that term, when I use the term inerrant to describe the original manuscripts of the Bible, I mean something very specific. I mean that the scriptures are free from error in what they intend to teach. And the important words in that sentence are the words intend to teach. Let me try and explain and give some examples. Hang in there with me. A, so this is 4A. If you take my meaning to be something other than I intended, that doesn't mean I was in error. I'll pick you up at the Dallas airport Thursday, 10 a.m. If I mean Eastern Standard Time and you're thinking Central Standard Time, you'll be early. But that doesn't mean I was in error. It just means you didn't understand my intentions in the statement. If I write you a letter of news or instruction and you are one of these new postmodern sorts, who believes that language is open-ended and can mean whatever the reader wants it to mean rather than what the author intended to say, then you do me a big disservice. It's not honoring to the letter that I wrote. You can easily think that I'm in error, but that doesn't mean that at all. Okay, B. If you press my words in details beyond what I was trying to teach... That doesn't mean I was in error. John Piper gives this great little illustration. If I say, son, go pick up your mother at the town square. And if my son drives to the town square and lifts his mother off the ground and then leaves her there and comes home, then he hasn't honored the instructions the way I intended. My words aren't in error just because he pressed them in a way that I never intended. C. The scriptures are not in error when they describe events as they are seen. There are so many examples of this. Let me just give one that's quite famous. Joshua 10, 13. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jeshar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. Now, I believe in that miracle. I believe what the Bible says. That's not my point at all. The point is this. Joshua isn't calling us to believe a pre-Copernican view of astronomy when he says the sun stood still. We all know that even though that miracle was real, the sun doesn't move in the first place. The earth moves around the sun. And that's what Joshua is describing. The Bible isn't in error because it's merely describing what Joshua saw when he looked up into the sky. That's not an error. D. Idiomatic expressions aren't errors. We do this all the time. That noise scared me to death. 
I had a dollar for every time my mother told me something her four boys did scared her to death, I could have retired a long time ago. The truth is, none of us scared her to death. She lived through it. That's not what she was intending to teach us when she said, what you guys are doing scares me to death. I know what she means when she says that. Here's, here's another example. Genesis twenty two seventeen. I will surely bless you and will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven. Listen, and as the sand, as the sand that is on the seashore. Wow, really? As many as the sands on the seashore. Well, there aren't that many Jews on earth today. There are somewhere around 14 or 15 million Jews on earth today. That's way less than the sands on the seashore. But it's not an error. The prophet Jeremiah tells us what God's words in Genesis mean when he says, like, more than the sands on the seashore. Jeremiah 33, 32. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David. There's the meaning. Nobody, remember, in that day especially, no computers, no one was going to sit down and count four, five, six million Jews. That's the point. You can't measure that many people, especially in a day with no computers, not even adding machines. There's no error there. Unnumberable. E. It's not an error when Parallel passages are worded differently around the intention of the author or details are included in one account and are omitted in another. I mean, examples abound all through the scriptures. Genesis 1 starts with the creation of the cosmos and ends with the creation of man. The second creation account in chapter 2 starts with man and works back to the cosmos. The second chapter is intentionally describing creation, not chronologically, but anthropocentrically, man-centered, showing God's intention to work all things around the creation and fall of mankind. It's not an error. Matthew gives a longer version of the Lord's Prayer than Luke. The Beatitudes vary in length in two of the synoptic writers. Parables vary in the telling to suit the purpose of the occasion. All of this fits with the idea of inerrancy. The scriptures are totally accurate and truthful in all that they intend to teach. We're almost done now. Number five, you keep saying the scriptures are inerrant in the original manuscripts, but we don't even have the original manuscripts, so what good is the doctrine of inerrancy? I mean, that's a fair question. You keep saying the original documents are absolutely free from error, but who cares? We don't even have those original documents. How in the world can it matter that they're inerrant? Well, A, I think it matters a great deal. It matters because it gives us an absolute standard, a genuine historic reality toward which the whole science of translation works back further and further and further with an absolute standard to go by. For all practical purposes, we're already there. 
to the degree that we do the work with the text as we continue to study and labor honestly with the actual historic manuscripts we are pouring into the very words of God. And with that in mind, if you guys can get this, I want to recommend as much as I can this book. I'm springing this on them. It is one of the very best things that I have read. Alyssa Childers is just a great author, anything you see by her. But she has a chapter in here specifically on inerrancy, dealing with these questions. And she answers them in a lot more detail than I'm able. If you can get this book, Maybe in one of the emails down the road, we, we highlighted it once. Maybe uh, Pastor Chris will highlight it again. I would highly recommend you get this. Read it through a couple of times. It, it will do wonders for, for your Christian walk. Well, I probably took too much time. Church, we, we simply have no idea what has gone into these these precious Bibles, you've probably got eight of them in your house. We throw them on the shelf and on the back seats of our cars. The first Greek New Testament was produced by Erasmus in 1516. Think about that, 1516. This was the first published New Testament. Think about that. Before that, before 1516, Bibles weren't printed there was no way to publish any of them. There were no word processors for the first 1,500 years. These Bibles, the ones you have, weren't mass-produced. They were painstakingly, individually copied by hand. Take out your Bible and just look at it for a minute. How many do you have? different types of print, different kinds of bindings. How many translations? How did that become possible for you and for me? I mean, here's what went into that text that you carry around with you today. For 1,500 years, thousands of monks and scholars spent their whole lives, every hour, every day, with quill and crude ink, scratching out what they knew were words too Precious, not to pass them on just because there was no way to mass produce them. Picture some dark chamber where someone you'll never know wept over words as in Greek or maybe even Latin. He scratched out slowly. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him, slowly, was life. And the life was the light of men. That's what went into this book. Hide it in your heart. Hide this inerrant, infallible word of God in your heart. And... You will be like that tree. This is the stream, Psalm 1. Be that tree that stays green because it's right there. This word will do that. It'll do that in your heart and in your life. Let's pray. 
more to be desired. Your words, your ways, than gold. More has gone into it. Oh, how we love your word. We have nothing better to do than studying it, memorizing it, thinking about it, arguing from it. Bless it to our hearts this Lord's day, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Join us Wednesday, church, for right here we'll be in the book, studying Mark. We're going to be finishing that soon. Wednesday, 7 o'clock for our devotional refresh. Love one another and uh, join us for our prayer time now.